so I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, wow, it's, it's been a long day, like a shockingly long day. And I look at the clock and it's just barely 7 p.m. It's one of those days where I think like time stopped at some point and I only just now caught up because I'm pretty sure it was noon for like three or four weeks. What a, what a crazy, busy, wild day. Now, I do have I do have an announcement. I do have something that I want to make. Uh, I want to make one small note here. So uh, tonight, we're not so much sponsored as I do have a link for you. So if you want to support the podcast, the streams, and all that, and you're looking for one way to do it that isn't Patreon, because maybe you're not down for Patreon and you don't want to deal with PayPal and all that stuff, try this. John helps you write better. Dot captivate.fm slash support. John helps you write better dot captivate C A P T I V A T E dot F M slash support S U P P O R T. Uh, it is one exact way for you to hook up and support everything without going through the hassle of Patreon, who is staunchly anti-sex worker, staunchly anti-union and not always the the best uh, people to deal with when it comes to problems and issues and things, consider supporting through Captivate.fm. That said, uh, now that I've, I've gone on at length about my long-ass day, I think it's time to get started. Shall we? Let's answer some questions tonight. Here we go. All right. Just remember... What I've taught you. What the fuck is that? Hey, yo. So here we are. Hello, everybody. Hi. How are you? I hope you're doing well. It is a, a fine and wonderful Wednesday evening, or I guess Thursday morning for some people. I don't know how time zones work. I'm not a timeologist, but all the same, I hope wherever you are, whenever you are, you're doing well because maybe you're not hearing this live. If you are watching or listening to this live, hello, Twitch and YouTube chat. It's so nice to see you. Thanks for being here. Everybody good? We all got enough water, got enough tea, comfy. We got the good clothes on, had a nice day. I'm John. This is the writer's chat. If you have no idea what this is, this is a Q&A where I'm about to answer a ton of questions from writers, just like you, who ask all different kinds of things about writing and editing and publishing. And it's my pleasure to do so. But first, we have an intro to do. 
Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, dreamers, pantsers, plotters, enthusiasts, lap sitters, nacho cheese lovers, whipped cream lovers, anybody who can appreciate like a good Sunday randomly. I mean the dessert, not the day. People who always remember to run the dishes before they go to bed. People who have a great time remembering where they put their keys. Anybody who's been outside taking a deep breath and said, yeah, it's not going to be too bad a day. Sandwich enthusiasts, toast enthusiasts, anybody who can appreciate not cheating at a video game. Anybody who can appreciate cheating at a video game because, come on, how many times are you going to lose all in a row? YouTube enthusiasts, channel surfers, cookie monsters, people in T-shirts, people in pajamas, people all over the place, anybody who's ever been near a sailboat, and most importantly, the comrades. Hi, welcome. We've got some, we've got some interesting questions tonight. Um, they're they're really sort of focused on not necessarily specifically writing. So if you're listening to this or watching this and you've got writing questions, fire away in whatever chat uh, you've got in front of you, be it YouTube and Twitch. Ooh, here we go. Here we go. Question number one. What can I do when somebody or someone's left me a bad review? Well, you've got some options here. One, you could do nothing. That's always an option. You could just nod your head, move on, carry on with your day. Like it's no big thing. You could, if that doesn't sound appealing to you because that seems very passive, you could get very angry. You could get absolutely heated. You could get so angry you decide to reply to that person's review and demand they explain themselves because how dare they not like this thing you worked very hard at making? How dare they? They're an idiot. They're wrong. You demand a full explanation. You should ask to speak to their manager, in fact. What's a third option? You could do the same thing and reply to them, only instead of being an absolute flaming monster, you could ask, hey, what didn't you like? What did I do that didn't work for you? What would you have liked to seen that isn't just, hey, if I were writing the book, I'd do it differently. You can ask a sincere question. Maybe that'll make a difference. Other thing you can do. You can, you know, block them from whatever platform they're leaving the review on so that you never have to engage with them again. You have quite a few options. Not all of them are going to be as productive or soothing as others, but you have options. You know what option you don't have? You can't sue someone. You cannot sue them for damaging your brand because they left a bad review. That's the kind of weird policing shit that scams do. Have you ever noticed that there's all these different like people offering like big, expensive, multi-thousand dollar things, but when you go Google them, there's never anybody complaining about them. There's only ever their own pages of their own testimonials. You ever notice that? That's because a lot of people are very averse to a bad review, and they take it not as a review of this thing they made, but a review of who they are as a person. So clearly, a bad review of my book which may in fact, you know, be warranted if your book is not great, suddenly turns into a bad review as you as a human. And that is just something that a lot of writers cannot tolerate because they refuse to make the distinction that they are not the things they make. However, 
you don't have to engage with bad reviews. If they're just, you know, blanket reviews that are, oh, this sucks, I don't like it, or get your politics out of my whatever your thing is. Uh, you don't have to do anything about that. That's essentially noise. If it were more critical, if it were about, oh, well, you know, what this really would benefit from is an editor or, you know, I can't believe the last two chapters rushed everything. Yeah, then maybe there's something you can extrude from that, something you can extract from that and, and do something with. But by and large, if it's just, you know, people crabbing to crab, oh, my God, this sucks, I don't like it, they're, they're, you don't have to do anything. Some people, the pearl clutcher scold kind of people, will tell you that you just can't let that sit because that'll damage your SEO. Um, it, it doesn't really matter if it damages your SEO or not because SEO is mutable. Algorithms change all the time, and we have very, very little control over any part of them. And in fact, the illusion of control is what helps the algorithm stay the algorithm. So you don't have to engage with a bad review. And if you're worried that you're, all you're getting are bad reviews over and over and over again, maybe it's time to think that, you know, one person's just cranky, two people, maybe they're a, you know, a brigade, but when everybody's doing it, maybe there is something to it. Maybe it is time to stop and take a look at yourself and be objective rather than, you know, subjective and, and treat yourself to the better quality you're capable of. Those are the things you can do with bad reviews. Most of the time, though, they're not always worth your time because the Internet prizes and praises uh, negativity and toxicity because positivity is scary. On to question two. How am I supposed to market my book if all I have are bad reviews? Well, uh, you have some options. One, you can market them, you can market the book independent of the reviews. Just pretend like the reviews aren't there and mark it as per usual. It's a totally valid, cromulent strategy. You can do that. You can spin the bad reviews to be, you know, an advantage. Like, come see the book that 53 people only gave two stars. Something like that, where you're actively calling attention to the fact that it's so bad and you are now challenging someone else to join the badness. Now, the, the downside there is that you have to be willing with understanding that people don't like your stuff. For a lot of people, that can be real difficult. But maybe it's just not any good. It is possible that you wrote a thing that warrants its bad reviews. You could have written poorly. It could have needed more work, but maybe you rushed. Maybe you raced ahead because you just had to be published. Who knows? I don't know. But if all you have are bad reviews, your fundamental choice is, do I engage with these reviews? Do I do something with them? Or do I ignore them? But don't think that just because you got a bad review, let's say you only have three reviews, two are just kind of a couple stars and piffle, and the third one's actually substantively bad. You don't have to engage with them. You can just say, you know, hey, check out my book, independent of its reviews. Just don't mention them. You, you don't have to constantly throw yourself upon the rocks. Oh, my God, I have bad reviews, and you have to hear about it. You don't. You market your book however the hell you want. If you want help doing that, if you want to maybe not get bad reviews next time, if there's going to be a next time, ask for help. I'd be more than happy to help you. But you have to ask for help in order to get help. It doesn't work any other way. But you can market your book independent of bad reviews or leverage the bad reviews into something you can use. Pretty straightforward. 
Question three. How can I encourage people to leave good reviews? Well, guess what? You have options. But also, I want to call out your language here because encourage people is often the softer way of saying make people. How can I make people leave good reviews? And the reality is you can't make people leave good reviews. You can at best encourage it by having something that in, is is worth good review and worth their time. Now, way back in the day, you used to be able to bribe people. I mean, you still can, only the algorithm now doesn't like it so much. But you, you could have incentivized good reviews. Hey, leave a review and I'll send you a thing. There are still some areas and arenas of creativity where if you get a review, if you leave a positive review, you will get some kind of benefit or promotional thing from the person you are leaving the review for. It's not so common so much in books. But you can encourage good reviews because you created a good product. If that seems very abstract, if that seems very nebulous, if that challenges your estimation of self-esteem and the value of your work, if you're uncomfortable letting yourself be good enough to write a thing that creates good reviews, and you would just rather live in that nebulous space of, I don't know if I'm good enoughness, well, what else you can do is just ask nicely. Hey, did you read my book? Did you like it? Would you mind leaving a review? Here's the link to leave a review. And leave it at that. You don't need to micromanage. You don't need to constantly like poke with a stick. You can just say it, set it, forget it. Simple. I can't guarantee that, that people will leave reviews. A lot of people see reviews as like a, an unnecessary complicated hurdle. And a lot of people have an idea that a review needs to be some kind of like academic treatise or something. It doesn't. It just needs to convey to other people how they should purchase the book or not. But you can encourage that by asking nicely, just like you can encourage getting help by asking for help. But you can't guarantee that you will only get good reviews. That's just not how life works. I wish it was. I really do, because I'd probably be a lot happier in my life. But all the same, um, you wouldn't really understand a good review until you've seen some bad ones. So you got to take them both. Encourage by asking is my advice. On we go. Are there any questions from anybody in chat? Hello, chat people. It's good to see you. I hope you're doing well. I'm going to do the cup date in a second. Hang on. All right, cup date. Uh, tonight we are rocking some Turkish tea. It was part of a multi-pack. Um, it the, it's the last of the multi-pack. It's really heavy, like really heavy. Um, I don't think I'm going to drink maybe more than one glass of it because, oh, I'm going to vibrate into another dimension if I keep drinking this. This stuff's potent. But it is good. It is very good, and it is smooth. Uh, two of things of which I enjoy in my tea for sure. Any questions, though, about anything, about reviews, about writing, editing? Nothing? Otherwise, we're going to keep going. On we go. Question number four. What's the best way to give your supporting cast more page time without stealing focus from the main characters? Now, I hate to tell you this. I am like 99% certain I have answered this question 
a number of times and it gets asked in a couple different ways. I'm not mad. It's fine. I'll answer it again. Don't worry. But this, this question seems to come up quite a bit, maybe to the point where we should have some kind of extended conversation about balance and load. Balance and load are, are two narrative terms to describe the amount of time and space you spend on stuff. Balance is the idea that you're going to spend an appropriate amount of space on a thing relative to its value to the story. Small little details take up less space than big major things, and it all sort of balances out in the end. Load is the idea of how much attention you spend on a thing. So high load, big deal, low load, little deal. And balancing all those loads is part of the writing and creating process. If you're worried that your supporting cast, however many characters it, whether it's one sidekick or 10 people or, you know, a bunch of dwarves or who knows what, um, whatever size you're supporting cast, you want to make sure that what you're giving them is appropriately sized for their load in the story. You would not want to say, take the main plot and invest it and give it solely to the supporting characters who aren't really the reason why we're following everything. They're just sort of there. You don't want to intentionally pull that focus by force. Your supporting cast has a job to do in the story. They're there to support the main characters doing whatever the main characters are doing. And maybe the supporting cast is there to assist that. Maybe the supporting cast is there to be like a counterbalance to it. You know, main characters are doing A, we'll jump over here and do B with the supporting cast. Maybe they're there for levity. Maybe they're there for cannon fodder because we're writing a slasher and we're just going to mow out like 10 or 15 bodies by the time we get to page 200. Who knows? I don't know. But the point is you stick to the utility that the supporting cast serves. Now, your question here is how do I give them more page time? Here's that balance and load issue. If you are giving them more page time, period, you can make a case that you are stealing focus from the main characters because you're spending more time and space talking about non-main characters. Now, that's not always a problem if we're following like a B-plot or we've detoured the story and we're in a flashback or something or we've stepped away from the main narrative and the main pacing of the narrative. Like, that's, that's okay. It's, it's not the end of the world to do that. Don't do it all the time, but certainly it's not the end of the world when it happens. But the minute you start dedicating page space and page time, you're taking focus to some degree, be it intentional or otherwise. That does not mean you shouldn't focus on them. There's, there's no magic number, right? There's no magic specific formula that's going to be universally applied, not by genre, not by story size, not by number of characters, nothing like that. What you have to do is figure out, here's my supporting cast, however big they are. What is every one of these members of the supporting cast doing? How long does it take them to do it? How big a deal is it that they do it? Are they just showing up for like two scenes, saying a few things and dipping out? Or are they going to be around for 10 chapters, half the book, the whole book? Are they the love interest? Are they the, the parent or the spouse or something? And we're, we're going to see them, but never really fully fleshed out outside the frame of the main character. How are we going to contextualize this supporting cast? What are they here to do? Do this on an individual basis. Because if you're able to make a blanket statement and go, the entire supporting cast is all here to do one thing. 
my question to to you is going to be why is the supporting cast so big? If everybody's doing the same thing, does it really take, you know, five people to accomplish one goal? Make sure your supporting cast has something to do and then have them do it. Don't don't neglect that. Don't don't forget the part where characters actually have to do stuff. Just have them do things and it will work out in the end. There will always be a discrepancy, an imbalance. You're never going to have exactly 35,000 words of this and 35,000 words of that. Don't try and get it to zero out. Don't try to get it to balance. Just tell the story, and you'll naturally favor the main characters over time. And if the supporting cast gets shafted a little bit, then they get shafted a little bit. But don't think that there's supposed to be this quota of supporting cast time and everything else has to kind of be budgeted around it because it does not work that way. But if you're going to give them more time, focus on their utility, focus on what they're here to do and make sure that the story makes it possible for them to do it. Beyond that, I can't say without more specific concrete examples. Like if you were to tell me, hey, here's what my supporting cast is doing. Here's what my main character is doing. Like give me something crunchy and I can walk you through the specifics. But in the abstract, you just want to focus on the utility so that you have a reason to tell to to. To, uh, to talk about them at all is the what I'm trying to get out of my face when I say that. Good question, though. On we go. Question number five. When do I know when it's time to start marketing? Or put it more simply, when should I start marketing? I'm going to play with the definition of the word marketing here because there's always some amount of marketing you can do but not all kinds of marketing at different stages are the same. The marketing you do when the book is published and available available for sale is different than the marketing you do when you are just talking to your friends about the idea. But it all counts as marketing. Marketing is a really big umbrella. Don't pigeonhole it down to just, I'm going to tweet about my book link. It's more than that. But let's walk through the stages and steps. This is by no means hyper-conclusive. This is just me thinking off the top of my head. You can start marketing as soon as you start shaping the idea for the story because that initial surge of, oh my God, you guys, I had this great idea for a story. I'm so excited to start it. Here's the basic gist. That's a kind of marketing. You're getting some groundswell word of mouth attention, whether you're telling one person, five people, your Discord community, five Facebook friends, your partner, the randos at work, whomever. You're still trying to get some kind of positive response from them. That counts as marketing. Maybe you want them to also you know, come back later and ask you, hey, how it's going or whatever. But by and large, you started the ball rolling by talking about your idea excitedly. That's some marketing. As your effort develops, as you move through outlining, as you get into drafting, as you start beating your head against a rock trying to make the first draft happen, all that stuff, you can still do marketing. You can still update the people. You can still tell more people about things. You're not letting some cat out of some bag that it's not supposed to escape from. You're not harming anything by saying like, oh man, wrote another 2,000 words today, but I feel like I pulled them all through my ears. I'm exhausted that's, that's just as much marketing as anything else because you're keeping people abreast and informed as to what's happening while also doing it in an encouraging, positive, let's get conversation, let's get interest activated kind of way. You could even turn it negative and go, oh my God, this XYZ trend sucks. I can't believe I was ever considering it. 
And then you turn it into an open-ended question like, what was the last trend you regretted getting involved in? Something like that. That's during the drafting process. During the critique, during the revision process, you can do the same amount of marketing only now instead of talking about how the book is going in the writing process, now you can talk about what your plans are going forward. You pivot talking about the future rather than the present over time. Oh man, I'm super getting pumped to publish this thing. I got to start thinking about a cover. What do you think makes a good cover? And you start engendering a conversation with all the people you want to talk to. Then you publish and produce the book, whether we're querying it traditionally, I don't know why you would, but let's just hypothetically say that's what you want to do, or whether you were publishing it yourself, um, you get to talk about the book. Hey, my book will be out in a month, two months, six months, a year, two years, whatever. Uh, you can get it. You can sign up for the pre-sale right here. Uh, you can get on the, follow me on this, follow me on that, whatever. Here are my socials, et cetera, et cetera. Now that marketing, once the book has been produced to some degree, now that marketing sort of encompasses all the things we think about when we think about product marketing. We start talking about future sales and reservations and, and, you know, ancillary pieces of material. Hey, check out this ad and go look at this video and click this link and do this. And here's a playlist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff is just as much marketing as go way back at the beginning when you were talking to your friends about, oh man, you guys, I got this great idea. It's just not necessarily always the same thing. If you were to do some of those later steps in marketing early, like if you were to drop a playlist to the first five people because, oh man, you guys, I just got this great idea. Here's a playlist to get hype. You can still get something out of that. That's not bad or wrong. It's just that the later you do some things, you might see more success than if you hold them back and do them earlier. And it really isn't universal. It's not like, oh, you're X number of days in, then drop that playlist. Everybody does it differently. Some people start with that. Some people never talk about it, whatever. It's going to be a different process for everybody. It's going to be a different route for every author from author to author, but also from book to book. Part of the frustrating but exciting part in publishing is learning how this book, this particular one single one, is what you need to deal with and work with and come to understand when it comes to marketing. But you can market to some degree at any time. It's just not always going to look like the kind of marketing you think about when you talk about marketing. It's a great question. Thank you so much for it. On we go. Question number six. Why is nostalgia so popular? Okay. We are going to have a conversation about, you know, one of my least favorite things in existence, capitalism. Nostalgia is popular because capitalism makes it easy. Because nostalgia brings with it, no matter what it is, whether we're talking about, oh my God, I love that character from this book, or I love this piece of property, let's bring it back, or I love this old song, or whatever. I like this ice cream flavor. Nostalgia brings with it a certain level of emotion. And nostalgia is marketed to leverage that emotion. Hey, remember how you felt 20 years ago when this thing happened? Yep, well, now you can get it again. And they're counting on the fact that they can sort of um, magic up the past feeling to feel just as fresh and equal as it does or as it did 20 years ago. Like, remember how you felt on this date when you were 15? Well, you can do it again. 
hoping that a the association you had on this particular day when you were 15 is a positive one and hoping that it's something that you would like to feel again in place of whatever it is you're feeling. Nostalgia is popular because it's bringing emotional baggage with it. It doesn't require new production. I don't need to do a lot to cash in on nostalgia compared on producing a brand new thing where you don't have a frame of reference. I can, you know, softball uh, a media property with a character that we, you know, we've rebooted or something and I can do less work because some of that gap, some of that softness or whatever you want to call it is, is buoyed by, Hey, you remember this character. I don't need to explain so much. I don't need to go into great detail. I can just cash in on the coattails of your previous relationship with this character. And for a lot of people, that's, that's good enough. Hey, we're getting one more go around with these characters. Hey, we're telling the story again. And it's just good to have it back because it, it may or may not evoke some amount of emotion like it did before. It's cheap. It's real cheap. It's way cheaper and faster to bring up something that's already been brought up as opposed to developing something brand new. It's slightly less vulnerable that way. And it carries an inborn audience. Oh, you liked that thing from years ago? Well, come on back because we're doing more. Okay, that's different than trying to build an audience from zero. That's different than trying to grow from the bottom and, and see where you can get. It's also intellectually and creatively lazy. And capitalism loves that kind of laziness because it expedites the process of making sales. If I can just do the same thing over and over and then after a while take a break, come back and say, I'm doing it again like I did before, but do the same thing and not change anything, not expend any extra effort, then it's just nostalgia. Would you like some examples? Remember a couple of years back when there were all those surges on like the re-released old game consoles that you could just, you know, plug into your computer or your TV. Hey, look, it's the NES. Hey, look, it's the Super Nintendo. They're back. Or remember when they release like every couple summers they re they re-release Ecto Cooler. Or more recently, they talk about different TV shows that they're re-re-rebooting. Like, hey, we're going to do, you know, Frasier again. Hey, we're going to, you know, finally do a Star Trek The Next Generation, old generation in season three of Picard. We're just going to keep trotting out the same tired ideas rather than push something new. And even when we push something new, it's still going to be so deeply steeped in nostalgia. Because here's the other factor. Nostalgia is safe. If I can bring up, you know, Luke Skywalker and CG his face a little bit and have him just kind of look like he used to look in that other movie I liked, then I can, you know, play within the boundaries of what we already expect and what we already know, and I never have to really stretch to tell a better story. Nostalgia is lazy. It's not terribly creatively fertile because it requires pre-existing information. When here, Here's the wrinkle. When you take the pre-existing information as a base, hey, it's the Transformers, and then you decide, oh, no, no, we're going to do something entirely different, the uh, disconnect between nostalgia and new product can be so utterly jarring that the nostalgia loses its luster, and all of a sudden it's, oh, my God, what are you doing? You're ruining this thing from the past. And just so we're clear, 
you're not actually ruining the thing from the past because that's insulated and isolated by your memories and a, a moment in time. Like, Hey, you were eight. We're not making, we're not saying that what happened when you were eight is less cool. Now we're just saying that going in this direction with this thing sucks, but nostalgia doesn't make that distinction. Nostalgia just wants engagement. Nostalgia just wants action. So whatever emotions they can leverage, whatever nefarious bullshit, lazy ass tricks capitalism has to do in order to get you remembering how you felt so they can repeat it again and hopefully get the same experience twice. Capitalism's going to do all that. That's, that's their bread and butter. That's what they're into. Nostalgia is popular because it's a lot easier to call back and repeat than it is to trust someone or take a risk on someone and go forward. That said, there is a time and a place for nostalgia. But to make that the forefront, to make that the big banner marquee thing you're doing, I think that's to the detriment of everything else. Because after a while, it, it becomes absurd. We stop making new things and we just get busy talking about the same 15 things before. I'm... In my, in my aging process, I don't know how to say this. As I get older, uh, I, I'm reminded more and more of something that Vanilla Ice said, that the mid to late 90s were the last real time for pop culture because everything thereafter from about 2000 onward is some kind of reinterpretation or repetition of something that already was. And I laughed it off at the time because, oh, it's Vanilla Ice. You know, he's a contractor now. He's just casually making a remark on social media somewhere. Maybe it was Instagram, I guess. I don't know. But whatever. He's just, you know, a guy who's out of the spotlight, back in the spotlight again. But now as I sit here and I watch different shows get rebooted for streaming services, and as I watch new property get, you know, kicked to the curb because it was too new and didn't immediately get the numbers or the audience underneath it because it was so new. And when I see more and more giant mega corporations lean on nostalgia for everything rather than promote new people, create diversity, create opportunity, they just, let's go back to the well again and again and again. Or when I look at it outside of media and I'm like, hey, we're still doing oil and gas. Like we're cooking the planet. What's up? It's all nostalgia. It's all that kind of detrimental growth framed as eager, excited opportunity. I, I don't like it. I miss the 90s. I would do it all differently over again if I was able to retain my wisdom from now. But I also like now. Uh, I have my shit together. It's different. But nostalgia is popular because it's easy and cheap. There's your short answer. On we go. Are there any questions? I see more people came in. Hello, everybody. Hi, how are you? I hope you're doing well. Are there any questions from people in chat? While I drink more of this tea that may or may not be jet fuel, I don't entirely know. It's not bad, but oh, man, I should have diluted this with some ice cubes. Oh, well. Questions, anyone? Else we'll just keep moving. Plowing right along. Rocking and rolling. Onward? Onward. Question seven. 
If I don't want my book to sound like other books in my genre, what's the point in reading other books while I'm writing? I see your question. I will get your question next. Um, let's answer the genre question first, then we'll do the question in chat because it's more complicated and I'm going to end up talking with my hands. What's the point in reading other books while I'm writing? What else are you going to do when you're not writing? I understand there's this, there's this idea that gets kicked around, particularly in new writer spaces or anxious writer spaces, that what you read influences you. And you don't want to be unduly influenced, not, not out of like some plagiaristic need, but out of some idea that you'll write a thing, you'll, you'll read a book, you'll be so influenced by it, it that content or that frame or that idea or that something seeps its way into your work so that later down the road when you go to get it published or whatever all of a sudden somebody's going to be like oh this book's really familiar and really similar to that book and somehow you've 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 ruined everything first of all uh, you haven't ruined anything. That's just ridiculous. Two, most people are worried about step 35 when they're on step two. Step 35 is like, how do we get this book out the door? Step two is, hey, I guess I should write this book down. The point in reading other books is to see how other people use the same tools you do. You know, painters don't avoid color just because they are in the middle of painting. You, you go and engage with the world. Yes, it's going to influence you. No, it's not bad that it influences you. Just be influenced by it. And then go do your own thing. Have enough courage. Have enough vulnerability to do your own thing while you're reading. Read a book. Oh, my God, I like this book. You know, don't necessarily, I like this book, so I'm going to take some part of it and put it in my stuff. Because some of that will naturally osmos, tone, voice, atmosphere, turns of phrase, that kind of thing. But it's it's never framed like that. It's always framed of, oh my God, if you read a book, if you, re if you read something, somebody's going to steal it. Like it's going to show up there and ruin everything. And like that's one, it's anecdotal information. So it doesn't really have any bearing. And two, it doesn't really work like that. The point in reading is to gather more tools to make your writing better in some way, shape or form. Now you, it's true. You don't want your book to sound so much like other books in your genre that it seems like it's just cloned. But at the same time, a little bit of that sound is inescapable. You know, if you're writing, let's say science fiction, chances are you're going to have some science fiction in your science fiction, just like everybody else. But it's the specifics that are going to differentiate you that, that matters. I want to answer this question in chat. I'm going to put it up on the screen. What are some red flags to look for in agent contracts? Now, I want to point out, I don't have my Matlock graphic loaded, but I am not a lawyer. So, grain of salt on this, but here we go. Some red flags to look for. One, you never want to sign your rights away forever and always everywhere in the universe in perpetuity. Any kind of phrasing in a contract that suggests an undefined future amount of time, you don't want to go anywhere near. Because who knows if you'll ever get your rights or your material back. Two, you never want to sign anything that eliminates options for production. 
So any clauses that eliminate or remove the ability to produce follow-up media or ancillary media, like if you're producing a book, you don't want to give up, you don't, you don't want to sign a thing that eliminates your ability to produce an audio version or licensing for role-playing games or merch or something. You never want to look at, never, never sign a thing that eliminates the ability to produce supporting material. Third, never, ever, 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 ever sign a contract that does not specify very clearly how you're getting paid and when. If the money is just kind of like, ah, oh, we'll figure it out later. Well, you know what else you can do? Ah, oh, I'll sign this later. You, you, you don't want to have that be in the dark. Like it's more important that you know how you're getting paid, when you're getting paid, how much you're getting paid, etc. And contracts that don't discuss money or division or anything like that generally are the contracts that are thrown out hastily in front of somebody when they're the agent, the pimp is counting on the idea that, Oh, this person just wants to be repped. Like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm making their dreams come true. I'll, I'll throw any kind of bullshit at them and they'll absolutely sign it. Cause Oh my God, they just want to be repped. It's how writers get taken advantage of. Next thing. You want to look at your agent contract to make sure that there isn't a sliding scale for how much they take off the top. There are contracts. There are pimps out there who, you know, have a setup where, well, in the first book, I only take, I'm going to make numbers up, 7%. But that second book, 10. Fifth book, 12, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So as your now, they're going to frame it as, well, yeah, but by the time you get that deep into things, you're making more money, so it, it all works out in the end. It never works out. These people are exploiting you. If you're, if you're going to get hosed like this, if you're going to get taken advantage of like this, you should know what you're signing. Next thing, last thing. You want to make sure that the rights have an ability to revert to you. And that the terms and conditions for how that happens are very hyper, super crystal clear. And that you are not, in fact, signing over your material to some nebulous authority strictly from the pimp or from the pimp's agency. You don't, you don't want to be like, hey, I'll sign, you know, I'll sign this contract so you can rep me, but later find out that you basically sold the material to the to the agency and that you have no ability to get that back, to re-release it, to edit it, to continue it, etc. Really what you're looking for here are opportunities for growth and clarity and transparency. Those are the things you're going to look for. And of course, uh, if you don't like a thing, say something. Now, maybe that will require or warrant bringing in a legal professional, because I am not a lawyer, but bringing in a legal professional who can, you know, throw some Latin around or do something to give this, you know, give your request or demand some weight. But uh, there's also nothing wrong with you saying like, hey, uh, I don't understand this term. What the hell is this? I'm not signing it without knowing what I'm signing. You are allowed and you should advocate for yourself in these situations. You should get help as well, but you should also advocate for yourself. Those are the immediate red flags I can think of outside of specifics. Uh, 
giving away your money, giving away your rights, giving away, eliminating opportunity, um, signing in things without really getting a sense of who's doing what, when, and where all huge major problems. I know there are so many writers who are like hyper mega eager for representation because I guess they think it'll put them on like easy street. Like all of a sudden, oh man, I'll get repped. And then that rep will do all the work, whatever that work is, you know, phone call and emails. They'll do all this work and then I'll just get some money. And it, every time that comes up, I just think about how little these people understand about the process that they swear is very important to them. Like it, it doesn't work the way they think it does. There are way more steps, way more moving parts, way more conditional things. And their avoidance or ignorance of it does not make it more palatable when they have to come crashing down to earth and discover that, yeah, you'll get, you know, $10,000, but it's going to come in four irregular sized chunks spaced out over two years and it will never really be enough. Be very prudent with your contracts. It's ex absolutely something you should ask for help. Absolutely get a pro. It makes a huge difference. Great question. Love it so much. And yes, jet fuel. Oh, jet fuel is really helping me carry through the day. Uh, it's been a day. Had some really, really great parts, especially like in the, the hour or so right before chat has just been phenomenal. But by and large, whew, jet fuel all the way tonight. On we go to question eight. Question eight. What are two... Hang on, I want to make sure I'm reading this right. What are two things more writers need to focus on in the first three chapters of their books? I feel like I should have worded that question better, but I just pasted it out of the email. All right, so two things that you need to be aware of in your first three chapters. Okay, here we go. One, this one's a little abstract. Stick with me on it. Whatever you do, whatever kind of scene you have, be it dialogue or an action beat or investigation, or discovery, or revelation, or horror, or suspense, or tension, or whatever the hell kind of scene it is, dream sequence, flashback, whatever, no matter what it is, no matter what it's about, no matter who's in it, no matter how long it is, the first thing that that, that chapter is doing is teaching the reader how to engage with your work. That chapter is showing the reader, hey, this is how the writer put, wor puts words together. This is how they describe things. This is how the dialogue is going to flow. This is how things are going to be experienced and expressed. And that's the ground floor for reader engagement. Teaching the reader how to parse the material and picture it as a movie in their brain comes not from these specific events of, oh man, in the first five pages, somebody hides in a fridge from a nuclear blast. It comes in from the fact that how it's written, no matter what it is, makes an impact. Oh, look at these, you know, this combination of long and short sentences and the fact that the dialogue is real zippy. All of a sudden, we really feel like we're sucked into the world. Look at all this detail about the nature of the kingdom. That's so cool. And that helps teach the reader what to expect, what to look for, and how to engage with it. So that's a huge thing you need to focus on. Not so much what the scene is or anything, but just how that scene is coming across to the reader really, really super matters. Second thing, though, you want to be really clear that if you're opening with an action beat, 
eventually, usually within somewhere in the first three chapters, that action beat's going to end. And there's going to be some kind of lurch or gap or stall or moment of stutter where we transition out of the intensity of an action beat into something that is less urgent and motile. It's just going to slow down all of a sudden. And I'm, I'm think, let's think of a really hyperbolic example. In most bullshit boomer procedurals, there's an opening action beat, particularly in all the copaganda, all cops are bastards, in, in the copaganda like boomer shows where like we've got some guys running in with guns and no trigger discipline and they're running after like usually a minority and, and they're going to threaten them and hold them at gunpoint, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, then this action beat wraps up, somebody quips, uh, then they go to like the title credit sequence and then they immediately open where people are walking into like a precinct or a bullpen or some kind of like office space where they get assigned their next case. That big lurch of the action, oh my God, we're running, we're chasing, we're going to shoot a guy, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, sets the tone for how we can engage with the story and it sets, until we are corrected otherwise, sets the expectation and intention that this is the level the show's going to be at the entire fucking time. That's a lot. Um, it's also a complete piece of bullshit because the minute we stop this, the minute we catch our crook, the minute we quip and go to titles and credits, we immediately slam the brakes on and then all of a sudden have to <sighs> back in the bullpen, back at the home base, back at the precinct, back at the bat cave, back at wherever we are, start the new episode. That lurch, that gap, that stall is hugely unsettling because a lot of people really, really fumble it by making the action beat way more intense than it needs to be under the idea of it has to be intense because I'm desperate to engage my reader because I don't trust them or myself to do a good job. Followed by the absolute opposite of how active that was by slowly building up the plot because you also didn't want to rush. You also don't want to like, you know, you know, run right into things. We want to take our time and build. And it's the best of both worlds and you're going to end up with neither. So focus on how you're coming across, how you're communicating, whatever the hell it is you're communicating. That's item number one. And item number two, be very mindful of your pacing. I'm not saying this to make you overthink literally everything. I'm saying that if you're starting off real whiz-bang, big explosions, Michael Bay style, and then all of a sudden we have this very like tepid, quiet exposition scene, be prepared for the reader to have to kind of adjust their expectations as you downshift pacing and intensity. I'm not saying it's bad or wrong. I'm just saying it's real easy to mess it up and it's going to be difficult to get it back on track once you do. The solution for this is to ramp down more gradually. Plan out a better opening so that we're not just hitting big, you know, boom right up front and then doing nothing. Boom and then diminish over time and then ramp up or better tangle your opening. Like we don't always have to go to quip credits opening intro why can't we just quip while we're in the middle of the big explosion and then find a way to bring our plot in while the action beat is barely resolved that's an option why not do that those are two more things to focus on those are two more things to think about no matter what it is you're writing no matter the genre whether it's action whether it's romance whether it's sci-fi whatever two more things to focus on on we go question nine how much feedback from beta readers 
is too much feedback. Well, too much feedback is feedback you'll never be able to parse. Too much feedback is feedback you are overwhelmed to the point of paralysis over. Now, maybe that has to do with the fact that you have too many beta readers. If you have, I'm going to make large numbers up for the sake of the example. If you have, let's say, a dozen beta readers, they're probably giving you a dozen different things. And presumably they're going to give you more than one comment. So it's, you know, if 12 beta readers give you 12 comments each, that's 144 pieces of feedback. That can be a lot. And it's, if it's 12 things per chapter and you've got 30 chapters, we are exponentially growing very quickly and it can easily get overwhelming. There's no magic number of beta readers. I'm going to tell you, though, that your beta reader number should be pretty low and certainly much lower than you're probably thinking because few beta readers are just as viable as many beta readers because after a while you're going to start to see in the distribution of their commentary a lot of common ground. Yes, everybody hates Chapter 10, Ted. Nobody likes this character. Everybody thinks the dog is great. You're going to see a lot of common ground, and that's fine. It's to be expected. But to have this idea that multiple beta readers are needed for, for reasons, whatever those reasons might be, I don't know, you, you're, that's how you win publishing, whatever. Uh, you don't need that many. Now, in terms of feedback, when the quantity of feedback is a little unrestrained, like they've opened up this fire hose and they're just deluging you in like, here's a thing and here's a thing and here's a thing and here's a thing, it's because you failed to give them some boundaries. You, you want to be able to, your beta readers are there to serve a purpose, Right. That's why we're paying them. It's a job, right? It's This isn't just, hey, read this and let me know what you think because that's sort of like asking your mom if you look nice today and she'll just go, uh-huh, you look fine, and then walk away. It's of no help whatsoever, but it feels like we've accomplished something. Beta readers do better when they know what it is that's expected of them. So this is why we use things like a Google form, like a questionnaire, like a PDF, like uh, a simple you know, walkthrough. Tell me about X, Y, and Z. Here are very specific things I want to know about. What do you think about the theme? What do you think about the character? What about this plot twist? Whatever it is, you've got specific questions so that you can get specific answers. Remember, beta readers are not editors. So using them or suggesting or, or leaving it to them to do your bullshit copy is lazy and bad because a lot of beta readers are terrible editors who are applying at best a remedial to parochial level of, of grammar and calling that editing. But they're also completely ignoring the nuance and further development of story. They're not here to clean up your mess. That's what editors are for. That's what coaches can do. That's like an actual other person you can engage with. A beta reader's job is to read the thing before the regular general consumer does and give specific answers to questions as a way of sort of um, indicating for future use how a regular consumer might engage with something. They're the test field. They're beta testing your book. That's all. So when the amount of feedback is unrestrained, disorganized and overwhelming, you've got too much. If you're in that position where you just have so much and who knows what the hell to do with it, 
take the whole list of it, as much of it as you can, whether that's the whole thing or not. Take as much as you can tolerate. Look for common ground. How many people said they didn't like this thing? How many people said they liked that thing? And start sorting it out, not by the number of like, oh my God, I have eight more people to deal with. Fuck them. Let that go. Work with what you can. If you're that inundated by stuff, it's going to be okay. Because at the end of the day, beta reader feedback is not beta reader requirement. It's still opinion. It's still something you can choose to engage with to whatever degree. If you're inundated, start small. You don't have to make every change. You don't have to make every change everybody says. You don't have to try and explain to the beta readers what the hell you were trying to do unless you've like grossly missed the mark. But by and large, it's just opinion. And you can take it or leave it. But if you're overwhelmed, it's because you need more boundaries and structure. And I swear to you, doing that will make a future beta reading experience much, much easier. As well treating them fairly and effectively like a job, because it is. But that's, that's a different issue for a different day. Great question. On we go. Are there any questions from anybody in chat? Flying right along. Totally fine, by the way. Always happy to. Just happy to be here. Close some of these extra windows because I'm not seeing any other questions. Cool. Shall we go on? Keep moving? Let's. Question 10. When an agent says, this is so good, but it's not for me. What does that mean? Well... It could mean a couple different things. And I know this is going to be really frustrating because it, uh, on one level, it does mean that they really like the thing, but it's not for them. Uh, but it also means more than that because that's the nature of dealing with middle people when it comes to engaging stuff. I see your question. I will get to it in a second. So when they say it's not for me, that's the part to clue in on. That means that they feel they can't sell it. That means you've given them something that they don't represent, so they don't have any means to get it out into the world, sell it or distribute it. Um, or they like it, but they they don't even know how to engage with it. They know they liked it, but they don't really know what it is they liked. It is a cop-out. It, it is a chicken shit way of patting you on the head while also telling you, like, I don't fucking know my job. Because ultimately it's, this is good. Like, oh, you made dinner. It was delicious, but I don't know what the hell I just stuffed in my mouth. Oh, this is so good. Good job. Pat on the head, pat on the head. Keep feeding the system, but it's not for me. I'm going to reject it, but I told you it was good. So that counts. It doesn't count. It sucks. It is one of the least helpful things an agent could say. It would be better to be like, it's not for me, period. But to to set everything up with, this is so good. Insert emoji or gifts there as needed. Uh, you'll, you'll find out just exactly how patronizing and vac uh, vacuous this statement is. Basically, it means I, I liked this thing, but I have no ability to sell this thing. So I would be a bad pimp for it. And I need to be a pimp because I insert myself into the business of other people and exploit workers who do things. But uh, I don't know how to do my job here with this thing you've made. But I'm going to tell you that you did a good job. 
That's what it means. It's applesauce and mayonnaise. Ugh. Now there's a delightful question in chat. How would you create a vignette-based story? Ooh. Okay. So without without further context, what you'd want to do is figure out whether or not the vignettes in question all have something in common. Now, maybe hopefully they have multiple things in common. Maybe all the vignettes involve the same five characters. Maybe all the vignettes involve the same five characters and all take place at the local high school. Maybe all the vignettes are all the same sort of thing. All the vignettes are dialogue scenes. There has to be some kind of common ground between all the vignettes because that's how you're going to figure out how to organize them in writing. If you just have disconnected vignettes and they're all different, then it's not really a vignette-based story. It's a story weakened by its vignettes. To be specifically vignette-oriented, you're going to want to make sure that there is enough distinction between vignettes while also enough similarity between vignettes so that you can move from one thing to the next and there's still a common ground. All our vignettes are fight scenes. All our vignettes are scenes where different people are telling their mom about their day at work. But there's also enough variation between them beyond just like, oh, well, this one involves Kevin and that one involves Ted and that one involves Sam. Rather than just make distinctions on small, superficial, or cosmetic things, you want to make sure that your distinctions are clear. But generally, a vignette-based story has enough common ground between all its pieces that a reader can get a sense of how it is to be assembled or how it is to be parsed. Like an epistolary story, that's a story written with letters and, and transmissions back and forth, that is arguably a vignette-based story because each letter written by a different person for a different function encapsulates some little detail that otherwise would come out in exposition. And you you do that in, by creating a framework for the vignette. Here's our vignette, whatever it is. What kind of thing is it? What kind of scene is it? Who's in it? What are we doing here? Do we have any vignettes like this? How, you know, so this is vignette A, how are vignettes B and C similar to it? Or maybe it's Q, or maybe it's D, or maybe it's F, or maybe it's Z, who knows? But you find your common ground and then attach things together. The problem, the downside, the thing to look at when you're writing in vignettes is that you've got common ground between pieces, but no easy way to segue between piece to piece. This is a common problem in anthologies where all of a sudden we just have to figure out where to stick this author with their short piece. And it, it's, it's good and it's what we wanted, but compared to the two other things to its left and right, it feels very out of place. Vignette-based stories aren't bad, but they're tricky to manipulate because you need that common ground to have a reason to hold everything together. Otherwise, it's just like partially a story that you didn't know what else to do with. So you just started writing it in little bubbles. If that's the case, then you're not really following vignettes. You're just poorly framing a story. There's a difference there. But again, this is all going to come down to specifics. Like if I had the thing in front of me, I could tell you what it was and give you more specific concrete answers as to how to do it. But in the, in the larger picture, in the abstract, you are looking for reasons and common ground between all the vignettes however many you had, whatever they might be. What a nice, great question. Thank you so much for it.
Shall we move on? Question 11. What is a silent structure? Now, you've heard of this before. I know you have. You've just never heard it given this name. A silent structure is one of the big things the internet loves and thrives on. A silent structure is the idea that if we're talking about A and B and you don't mention C, that you have like no care at all for C. So if we're talking, if, if in your story, for instance, you don't talk about, nobody sends like physical mail any, like nobody sends physical mail in your story because your story is about two people marooned on a, on a desert island and there's no post office. Because you don't mention the postal service, because it's just a story of two people marooned on an island, there are going to be some people who argue that a silent structure of your work is that you hate the post office because you didn't put it in your story. Or, in, in broader, more common ground terms, if your story doesn't have a romance subplot, as a lot of stories don't, but if your story doesn't have a romance subplot, you, the author, and or you in your manuscript must hate romance and attraction between people. There's no basis for this. There's no reason to think that. But the absence of a thing for some people, the absence of a thing becomes a certainty of an opinion. Oh, you didn't talk about guns, so guns must not exist in your story. You didn't talk about dogs. There must be no dogs in your world. No, it just, it just didn't come up because that's not what the story's about. A silent structure is a very internet phenomenon that the absence of a thing becomes a certainty. Well, you didn't talk about this marginalized group, so you must hate them. N no, I just wasn't talking about that thing. That doesn't mean I hate them. Just I didn't talk about them because I wasn't talking about them. Example here with me writing. You know, I'm, I'm answering questions, but I'm not answering questions about physical book manufacture because nobody's asked any questions about physical book manufacture. So that must mean that I don't know anything about physical book manufacture. That's the silent structure implied by the content of what I'm saying. It doesn't work that way. I'm shrugging like you're going to hear my shrug in audio, but silent structures are a gross misunderstanding of how things work. Just because a story is lacking something does not mean the author nor the manuscript has a staunch opinion about it. For instance, there are no airplanes in Dracula. Does that mean that... Um, Bram Stoker hated airplanes? No. It's that the airplane doesn't exist or didn't exist at the time he wrote the story and it just didn't occur to him to write it. Or if we're going to use a more modern example so that we, we have a full breadth of things to talk about, uh, let's suppose you are writing a romance novel and no one sends each other a text message in a modern-day romance novel. It is entirely possible 
Because let's say that people are always interacting in person. There's no reason to text them. Maybe they're two mountaineers who are trapped in a, in a blizzard in a small cabin and they get to know each other and then, I don't know, do romance naked things. There's no reason to text them. There's no reason to bring up your phone and, and you know, share some emoji because that's not what your story is about. Silent structure is a complaint or a, a slightly less than well-intentioned statement people make when they're trying to call attention to something, but they don't necessarily know a more tactful way to do it. Because let's say you're omitting like your story. I don't know. You're writing science fiction and uh, you don't have any bisexual people in your story. Just because you don't. Everybody is heteronormative because whatever, because that's just the story you're writing. The, or they're monogamous or whatever. They, they, you know, you're not writing X, so you didn't put X in the story. Um, rather than ask, hey, what about X? Which would be the better, more effective communication to bring up and have around this idea. Hey, how come your story doesn't have any camels? Is that because you hate dromedaries? No, it's because I didn't think to put any camels in. I didn't, I didn't write any bi people, not because I, I think bisexuality is some terrible, you know, blight upon mankind. It's that I, I just, I just didn't think of it when I was writing it. It didn't, it didn't come up. There's a, there's a movement inside uh, a lot of writing spaces and social spaces, especially online that having that called out, having that brought up is an indicator that you need to put it in your story. I don't know that I always agree with that because taken to an absurd length, taken taken farther out in its logical conclusion, you start shoehorning everything and its mother inside your story just to make sure you've covered your bases. And some stories just aren't built to contain that. That's just how some stories are. We can't, for instance, suddenly have texting happen in Frankenstein or American Psycho goes all to pieces when we don't have corporate culture. It just, some things don't work in, in some spaces, but silent structure is this idea that a lack of something becomes evidence of something else. When more often than not, it's just simple lack of inclusion rather than a, a staunch hardcore stalwart statement. That's a silent structure. On we go to question 12, but first I'm going to put more jet fuel in my face. Have you ever worked with a writer who should have started over, but instead kept pushing ahead with a bad book? Yep. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Frequently. Uh, it, is, it is not uncommon to have a writer very stubborn about their work because they've, they've really locked into the sunk cost fallacy. This idea that I've spent so much time and I've put so much effort into this thing that I know I can fix this. I know I can make this work. And that starting over means I've wasted my time or that um, I'm, I'm admitting some kind of grand defeat. So I'm just going to keep moving ahead with a thing that's effectively not working but I'm, I'm determined to somehow make it work. 
I see this a lot. It is frustrating because you're not wasting time. I know you're thinking about it in terms of, well, I'm trying to get this book published. And that's true. You, you always are. But what we're talking about is not this book in the abstract. It's this iteration of the book, this particular draft. And you, you have to know when the draft isn't going anywhere. The idea is sound. No one's attacking the idea fundamentally. But how you've written it this time, we're done. I'm not saying you need to give up. I'm not saying you need to throw your keyboard out. I'm not saying you need to never write another word. I'm saying that this particular thing in this particular way isn't helping. And trying to force it, trying to make it fit, trying to make it do this thing, or worse, <clears throat> doubling down. <coughs> oh, excuse me, doubling down and like sticking to it to prove somebody wrong, me, doubters, haters, whomever. No good comes from that. Understand this. Learn this early, and it will reward you later frequently. <clears throat> when there's a problem with a draft, if it's a narrative problem, if it's a structural problem, if it's a conceptual problem, the problem is with the manuscript. The problem is with how you've written whatever you've written. The problem is not with you as a writer. It is not with you as a creative. It is just how you have done this thing. And your goal of wanting to do this thing well enough that it goes forward and becomes a product and sells and makes money and launches a career, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that's fine. That's great. That's good. I hope your creative endeavors all work out in the long run. But along the way, along that process, you are going to run into situations, times, and spaces where how you've done a thing just isn't working. We've tried 100 million versions of a thing. We haven't found the one that really clicks yet. We'll keep trying. Learning that lesson, learning that persistence, rather than identifying with failure and saying one failure is like one failure too many, identifying that it's about the growth, identifying that learning or, or mastering the idea that it's, it's about evolving forward means you're never wasting your time. It's not about, oh man, I got to do this right in the fewest number of times like I'm on Name That Tune and the faster I do it, the faster I get my reward. Um, it's about how can I do this to the best of my ability? Stubbornness or trying to maintain a, an old draft but then you know amp it up in specific spots is going to come across as messy and disorganized because the old writing will not necessarily compare or fit in well with the newer, improved, craft-based writing, right? Like, if you, if you wrote 60,000 words and, like, took five years with no real attention to detail, no real attention to training or craft, and you just wrote as frantically and manically as possible then all of a sudden you sat down and were like, I'm going to take some classes. I'm going to get some coaching. I'm going to like learn some tools and, and learn how to do this stuff better. And then you go right and continue. You're going to notice a difference between the new stuff and the old stuff. And if you just try to shoehorn it in, it's really going to stand out. But yes, I've worked with plenty of people who should have started over because there's nothing wrong with starting over. It, it feels like a bit of a loss because, Oh man, I, 
I was so far. Yeah, you were so far with a thing that wasn't working. It wasn't, and it isn't going to spontaneously start working one day. That's not how this works. If we're not talking about books, if we were talking about paintings, statues, photos, anything, if every day you took a photo of a tree and it was a patently bad photo, it's out of focus, the tree's not, you know, set up correctly, there's no staging, there's no light, the light's really bad, the color grading's way off, whatever you want to critique. Or we're, we're carving a statue out of stone and all of a sudden, like, you hit the chisel too hard and you chip a critical part. If you kept chipping away big, messy parts, the statue inside the, the giant block of marble isn't going to suddenly reveal itself. It's not going to fix itself. You're just going to keep compounding your errors. This is why technique matters. This is why trying again isn't the loss that you think it is. Capitalism, our old ancient enemy, is going to tell you that it is because you're losing time, because you're falling behind, because FOMO, because inadequacy, because reason, 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 reason. None of that is accurate. None of that's true. But it's damn sure pervasive and damn sure persuasive for people who look at it and go, I got to hurry up. I've been doing this too long. It takes as long as it takes. Focus instead on producing the best craft you can, no matter how many times you have to start over, and you will see progress and feel better about it as opposed to kind of just banging your head against the same thing over and over and over again, hoping that all of a sudden it's just going to start clicking. Give yourself a better base and you'll see that progress you're looking for. There you go. Let's wrap this thing up with question 13, although I'm going to drink way more tea. I apologize for coughing. Good grief. Question 13. I get two hours a week to write. How can I make the best use of my time? Okay. I've talked a lot in a lot of spaces about different ways to schedule. And I'm not going to argue because the, the rest of this question asks me not to argue the idea that you probably have more than two hours because there are some people who just don't because of everything ranging from chronic illness to mental health to time to commute to whatever. Two hours is the complete amount of flexible time they have. Fine. Let's work with it. It doesn't matter if the two hours are on the same day. It doesn't matter if they're, you know, a day apart. It doesn't matter if it's Sunday and Thursday, whatever. You get two hours. Let's split this up. Let's do an hour of planning and an hour of writing. And in the planning hour, we're going to figure out not so much what we are immediately going to write because we don't ever, we don't really want to get into a situation where we are only at the current step, you know, okay, what's my, I'm going to write, I'm going to plan my opening and then write my opening and then plan my next thing and write my next thing. We want to get away from that because you'll, you'll make, you'll make progress, but you'll make less progress than you think. Not necessarily the best strategy there. So what you want to do and what you want to look for are your big blocks of planning time where you're planning more than just the immediate thing in front of you. Start thinking long-term. Okay. I'm going to spend an hour and get as far as I can going from the beginning of the book just in. Can I get through the first, can I plot the first act out in an hour? Maybe. 
I don't know. Maybe you've got a real facility for it. Maybe it won't take that long. Maybe you'll just get through planning a couple scenes. Depend. Everybody plans differently. But use your planning time to lay more groundwork than just the immediate. There's one of your hours. The second hour, write something. Anything. Doesn't have to be in order. Doesn't even have to be any damn good. But use half your time to write and the other half to prepare to write. It's going to make loads of things easier to work with. Absolutely easier to work with. Now, that said, if, you know, the planning stage doesn't take a whole hour, like let's say you know what you want to write and you've got it roughly outlined, so maybe your planning stage is like five to ten minutes, you just read your outline real quick, get a good handle on stuff, don't wait 45 to 55 minutes before your next hour starts, go jump straight to the writing. It's completely okay to do that. That's absolutely fine. But if you've only got two hours and we have so much to do, split it in half. Half is going to be a lot easier to manage because it's easy to watch a clock for than saying, okay, you have 15 minutes for this, 15 minutes for that, six minutes for this, nine minutes for that. Focus instead on bigger blocks of time and then just do that thing. When you have a, a small window in which to operate, your discipline comes at a premium. So turn your damn phone off. Close all those other tabs. I know, I know. It's, it's all cliche at this point. But if you don't, you are losing the little time that you have to distractions that you probably don't want to get involved in. Two hours, at least an hour of that should be writing. Whether it's drafting, whether it's finishing, whether it's whatevering, that's fine. Two hours, half or more should be writing time. Even if it's not the same day, even if it is the same day, use your time effectively and constructively, no matter how much you have. Rather than, you know, let's do two hours this week, all planning, two hours next week, all writing. Partner it up so that you're always doing something. You'll get it done to the best of your ability. You'll be fine. It's a great question. Now, over here, hang on, there is a sub-question. So let's throw that up on the, on the screen here. Sub-question, what are some good strategies to resurrect something? A manuscript, uh, not like Cthulhu, although Cthulhu should be, Haster by far should be resurrected, uh, that's been dormant a while that might be salvageable. Okay, first thing we should talk about is the determination and the decision behind might be salvageable. Because that's pretty flexible. If we are salvaging the whole thing, like we're going to bring it up from the depths and continue it, it's been chilling for a while, it's time to finish it, then the first thing to do is bring it up and read it. See what you agree with, see what you don't agree with, see what needs to be finished, see where you left off. You're not trying to recapture that, that feeling you had however long ago when it was an active project. Don't chase that. Let that part go. It's not going to be what you think it is. Instead, relative to where you are right now, knowing what you know, doing what you do, where would you end this, assuming we're talking about ending? If it's salvageable in pieces, I like this, I like that, I don't like this, I don't like that, the best thing you can do 
is gut the manuscript. Copy and paste the pieces you like, as disjointed as they might be, verbatim into a new file. I like this line. I like this character. I like this intro. I like this paragraph. All the pieces. And it's going to come like it's been spewed out of a wood chipper. It's going to be all over the place. I know. And that might be scary, frustrating, overwhelming, upsetting, whatever. But the idea is we are trying to salvage as much as we can that we think the has the most viability going forward. And it's going to come down not to like objective things like marketability or something. It's going to come down to, I like this. I'm going to try and keep it. So gut it for parts. Pull out all the stuff you like. And all the stuff you don't, once you're done, once you've gotten everything out of the manuscript and it's time to move forward, let the old one go. Go let it back down to the depths. Go drop it back into a file folder, wherever. But we are now only working with the salvaged parts. Try and then reconstruct or build for the first time a new order, a new outline, a new plan. And treat the salvaged material not as the foundation for this new thing you're building, but as different pieces you can incorporate within the new construction. You're making a brand new manuscript. Yes, it, it's really helpful that you're saving chapter 17, but what was chapter 17 in the old draft might not be chapter 17 in the new draft. Maybe that new chat, maybe chapter 17 suddenly becomes chapter one. You can still honor it, you can still use it, but you're no longer moored down to the old manuscript at all because it's gone. We let it go. We let it sink back down to the depths with Leonardo DiCaprio because allegedly there was no room for him on the door table thing. There totally was. She's just cranky. The, the point I'm trying to make is it doesn't matter how long it's been dormant. It matters. What matters is the decision to salvage it. The criteria you use or the criteria you will use to figure out what you're going to salvage and then how to incorporate some, because even if you salvage a lot, you're never going to incorporate all of it. It just, it just doesn't work that way. Usually how you incorporate the old stuff into the new stuff and what Swiss cheese you're going to have to patch. And I'm going to tell you right now, here's this, you know, other thing. When you start patching the old stuff into new stuff, you're going to find that it might be easier to rewrite the, the old stuff and put a new take on it. Don't, how do I say this? Don't get bogged down and don't marry the old stuff. It's not carved in stone just because it's from an old draft. It's just one more way you've tried to say a thing. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. Maybe it needs a new coat of paint. Maybe we need to change a few things. Maybe we need to change a lot of things. It's the basis for interpretation. It's a start point. It's a note as opposed to an absolutely seminal, in you know, indestructible thing that has to say that certain way. There you go. Um, speaking of Hastor, how would I approach rebooting Cosmic Horror? I'd make it about people. I would make it about... Um, not so much the mythology. I think that's the easy way out. I don't really give a shit about the genealogy of great old ones and greater, greater old ones and great old cousins and all that. I would look more at the existential horror of cosmic horror. 
the idea that there is something bigger in us and greater than us and it's it's ruining us and it will destroy us and we all we can do at best is try and just persist i'd frame cosmic horror as existential horror i'd frame it not as this magic hyper like oh my god we're turning into fish people like that's nice but for me cosmic horror is at its most poignant and potent when the characters aren't necessarily consigned to their worst fate, but when the the horror of their reality becomes apparent to them, realizing that, yes, they can find this ancient grimoire and it will absolutely like lead to unfathomable power and riches, but it also means that the the magic they're casting you know, will require them to sacrifice some part of themselves. And ultimately, in order to fix their mistake, when they realize it's too late, they end up having to kill themselves or, or, or murder all the plants in the house or something. I would reframe cosmic horror as existential with people because that's the more relatable element. Nobody really gives a shit about the giant tentacle thing coming out of the ocean, the, the big giant kaiju. That's nice and it's marketable, but the, the, the horror of cosmic horror is in the human interaction around it. That's how I'd reboot it. That way you're not dealing with the the baked-in racism, the baked-in sexism, the baked-in homophobia, and it can be addressed in more representative ways because it's about people and their bullshit as opposed to big giant monsters and their bullshit. Great question. Are there anything else? Any other questions? Any other issues? anything otherwise we shall get out of here yes no all right let's go to the outro where's my outro button there's my outro button I want to thank each and every single person for being here. I want to thank you for all your questions, all your comments, all your little notes. Uh, thanks so much for checking everything out. This really was a good one. Uh, remember, we have a new link. Uh, if you want to support the show and not necessarily through Patreon, you can go to johnhelpsyouwritebetter.captivate.fm slash support. I should put it on the end page graphic like this. I will, but it's brand new, so I haven't had a chance to update everything. But yeah, yeah. Um, Thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. All power to all people. Please take care of yourselves. Please keep making new things. Thanks for letting me talk to you for a little bit. It was nice to be in your ears and in your houses. So thanks so much. The next time I will see you. Let's see. Where's my The next time I will see you. I'll be right back here for the chat on May the 24th. But it is also very possible that you'll see me earlier for a stream about something best place to find out information about that is jump over to johnhelpsyouwritebetter.com sign up for the newsletter you'll get notified when I'm doing all the things everywhere so until then take care of yourselves I love you I'll talk to you soon see ya